This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 55, entitled The Israelite King and High Human Christology, Part 4. This will actually be the last installment of this particular series. Of course, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I am your host. In our previous episodes, we have extensively explored how God often empowered the human Israelite kings with exalted titles, God's own attributes, and his prerogatives. These human rulers were endowed with a high human status that never assaulted God's oneness and never compromised monotheism. These exalted human rulers were never thought of as blaspheming since God had authoritatively empowered them with these many distinguished accolades. We also noted that the New Testament authors were likewise influenced by these Jewish portrayals of human kings empowered by God in their depictions of Jesus, the human Messiah. Jesus also was highly empowered with a high human status that is appropriately called a high human Christology. The high human Christology acknowledges that the human Messiah bears divine attributes, prerogatives, and authority, but that these were given to Jesus by the only true God without compromising unitary monotheism. Today's episode will be the final installment looking at how the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, depicts the Israelite kings as highly empowered human beings who serve as a context out of which the New Testament authors portray and depict Jesus Christ with a high human status. We have a lot of exciting scripture to look at, so let's begin today's study. Our first point today is called the high human status of the Israelite king in Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, a very famous passage, it reads, For a child is born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That's Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. We can see here that the Davidic king in this passage, and he is described as a Davidic king in the following verse, Isaiah 9-7, is actually described with many exalted titles. The one that is the most relevant for our study is the second one, where this king is called Mighty God. Now I know that this passage gets preached every Christmas season as a prophecy about Jesus Christ, in fact, modern critical commentators on Isaiah are unanimous in asserting that this reference was actually given to a pre-exilic Davidic king in the 8th century BC, with King Hezekiah being the most popular guess. In other words, experts on the book of Isaiah are in agreement that the title Mighty God was originally applied to a human king in the 8th century BC. Here is an excerpt from John Collins' commentary on Isaiah in regard to this exalted title. The titles given to the royal child, especially God-hero, 
as he translates it, suggest that he is more than a human being. There can be no doubt, however, that the prophet Isaiah is thinking of an actual king in Jerusalem in the late 8th century BCE. The divine titles are part of the royal ideology. Psalm 2 and verse 7 declares that the king is the begotten son of God, although this is probably understood as a formula of adoption. Psalm 45 and verse 7 addresses the king as Elohim, God. The king is not considered equal to Yahweh, but he is regarded as a superhuman being. And that's what John Collins says in his commentary on the book of Isaiah. He notes, as we have observed here, that this title given to an ideal king in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 was actually given to an actual Davidic king in the 8th century. He was still a human being. God was still his God. And yet this human king is empowered with these titles. It is very similar to how the human king is given the title God in Psalm 45, as we've seen in a previous episode. But as Collins rightly points out, this Davidic king can be called God, making Psalm 45 and Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 the only two passages within the Old Testament to where the human Israelite king is called God. Namely, God himself has invested his name into this human king through whom God's rule and reign are realized on earth. Stated differently, Isaiah chapter 9 indicates that the human Israelite king, who was actually born and was a lineal descendant of King David, according to Isaiah 9-7, could be called God without any controversy surrounding the text. The prophet Isaiah does not regard this exalted title given to the 8th century king as a threat to monotheism, for, as we have demonstrated in the previous three episodes, God regularly invests his attributes, prerogatives, and even his name into human regents. Our second point today is that the high human status of the Israelite king is depicted in Ezekiel chapter 34. So we'll be looking at Ezekiel 34. I'm going to start by reading this passage starting in verse 11, Ezekiel 34:11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep. So I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the streams, and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, Bind up the broken and strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. As Ezekiel 34, verses 11 through 16. It's pretty clear in this passage that God says in the first person that he is going to act as the shepherd, regularly speaking, 
with the first person I and using those appropriate verbs in Hebrew. But we're going to see later in this passage, just a few verses later, that God also says, quote, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. That's Ezekiel 34, verses 23 through 24. Here it can be observed that God the shepherd intends to set before the people another shepherd figure, a Davidic figure, who is the ideal David. Of course, an ideal Davidic king is a human figure from the line of promised regents. This Davidic shepherd is distinct from the Lord God, as the Lord God is to be addressed as, quote, their God, end quote. Most importantly for this passage is the sharing of God's prerogative and task of the role of the shepherd with the human Israelite king. Our third point today is entitled, The High Human Status of the Israelite King in Micah chapter 5. In Micah chapter 5, we read an important prophecy about a coming ruler. It starts in verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. The passage goes on and it says, He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. That's Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 4. Here we note that a shepherding ruler is to arise coming from Bethlehem. The imagery of a shepherd and a ruler recalls none other than King David who was both of these things, both a shepherd and a ruler. This suggests that the coming ruler envisioned by Micah would be a figure like the Israelite king David. This shepherding ruler is distinct from Yahweh, the Lord, but nonetheless shares in Yahweh's strength. It says that he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In other words, God invests his own strength into this Israelite king. Of course, Yahweh functions clearly in this passage as his God, making it clear that God is the one who is ultimately in authority and this shepherding ruler is subordinate to Yahweh. We also note in this passage, most importantly, that this human ruler will also shepherd the flock, quote, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh, end quote. Yahweh shares his majestic name with this Israelite king, empowering him with a measure of God's own identity. However, Yahweh is still the God of this human king, so the subordinated distinction still remains despite this exalted measure of empowerment. This human king will share in God's own name. Our fourth point today is entitled, The High Human Status of the Israelite King in Zechariah chapter 12. In Zechariah 12, 8, the passage reads, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, 
And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. That's Zechariah 12 and verse 8. This passage indicates that the house of David, which is another way to refer to the dynasty of kings descending from David, will be, according to 12 and verse 8, like God. Or this Hebrew phrase could be translated as God. It appears that it is possible for a Davidic king, a human Israelite king, to be rightfully described as one who is, quote, like God, end quote. This phrase is similar to God speaking to Moses in Exodus, telling the human prophet that he will also be like God in Exodus 4 and verse 16. So, as we can observe here, the Israelite king who is fully human can be described as one who is like God under the right circumstances. It is important to note that there is a big difference between being one who is like God and one who is God. Zechariah 12 and verse 8 refers to the former, one who is like God, and even qualifies it as one who is like the angel of Yahweh. As we wrap up our study on how the Jews depicted the human Israelite king with a high human status, it is good to summarize today's findings. First, God can empower the human king with his name and title, where the Davidic king can be rightfully called mighty God without threatening God's oneness. Second, God can also share his prerogatives as the shepherd with the human king so that the king functions as the representative agent who embodies God's own shepherding and ruling tasks. Third, the Israelite king can be invested with God's majestic name, a way of sharing in God's identity. And fourth, the ideal Davidic king will be empowered with a measure of being, as Zechariah describes, like God. These are some of the most exalted things that appear to be rightfully describing the human king with a high human status. No one felt that this human king created a second god or altered God's oneness into a plurality within the Godhead. The high human status regularly accorded to the Israelite king makes for a valued context out of which the New Testament authors portray Jesus as the highly empowered human Messiah. Our fifth point today is entitled, Depictions of Jesus within the New Testament in Light of the Israelite King's High Human Status. Just as God empowered the human Israelite king in Isaiah 9-6, Ezekiel 34, Micah chapter 5, and Zechariah 12, with a high human status, the authors of the New Testament regularly depict Jesus Christ, the king of the kingdom of God, as a divinely empowered human being. Here are some of the most noteworthy similarities based on today's findings. Let's look at passages to where the resurrected Jesus is called God while remaining subordinate to the Father. John 20, 28 seems to be the most popular passage that points this out. Here, Thomas answered and said to him, answered and said to Jesus, quote, my Lord and my God. There, Jesus is unambiguously called God. But earlier, 
in John chapter 20 and verse 17, the resurrected Jesus called the Father, my God, in the same way that his followers are to address the Father as my God. So what we can see in John chapter 20 is that Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord, can be called God while still having a God above him being the Father. Jesus can bear that title God while still remaining subordinate to the Father as the only true God. Secondly, we need to note that Jesus functions as the human shepherd embodied with God's own shepherding task. Mark chapter 6 and verse 34 says that when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. That's Mark chapter 6 and verse 34. Jesus there functions as the shepherd, the one who shepherds the sheep, shepherding the people of Israel. He functions in this way as the teacher. Although it's interesting because the most prominent passage of the divine shepherd in the Old Testament would come out of Psalm 23 to where Yahweh is the shepherd. Here, Jesus here functions as the human shepherd who embodies God's own shepherding task. This can also be seen in John chapter 10. Jesus says, starting in verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. That's John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16, to where Jesus states that he is the good shepherd, but this act of shepherding is in light of his knowledge of the Father and the Father's knowledge of him. Of course, Jesus as a shepherd is one who is mortal, one who lays down his life for the sheep, and Jesus has the function of gathering the scattered sheep into one single flock with him being that one shepherd, that one shepherd who has been empowered and embodied with the shepherding task that originally belonged to God alone. Our third reference to Jesus is that Jesus is clearly depicted as the ideal king envisioned in Micah chapter 5. You can see in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 5, the text reads, They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. Where very clearly Matthew is citing the passage from Micah chapter 5 in reference to Jesus. There is no question. Matthew thinks that Jesus is the Israelite king that was depicted in Micah chapter 5, that particular king that shared in God's own strength and was able to operate as God's ruling shepherd who bore God's own name. Our fourth reference to Jesus is looking at that very point where Jesus shares in God's name. Mark chapter 11 talks about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Those who went in front of those who 
followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. That's Mark chapter 11, verses 9 through 10. To where those in Jerusalem acknowledge Jesus as the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and yet Jesus is the recipient of the kingdom of their father David. Jesus there functions as the Davidic king, the Davidic ruler, but he comes in the name of Yahweh. He bears Yahweh's name as one who has been empowered with that name. Jesus shares in God's name as God's rightfully appointed human ruler. In John chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. That's John 5 and verse 43. Jesus clearly says that he has arrived in the Father's name. Jesus shares in the Father's own name because God has invested his name into the human king, Jesus, just as God has invested his name in previous Israelite kings. Of course, there's another way to where Jesus shares in the name of God in that sometimes, on rare occasion, Yahweh quotes and citations from the Old Testament are used of Jesus. Like in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, which says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Here, Paul is referring to Jesus as the Lord, but the citation from Joel chapter 2 and verse 32 is a reference to Yahweh. Whoever calls upon the name of Yahweh will be saved. A lot of people have just assumed that this means that Jesus is Yahweh. But as we're seeing, God can invest his name into human rulers, specifically Jesus. And if God can invest his name in Jesus, then Yahweh texts from the Old Testament can be quoted and used of Jesus because Jesus shares in God's own name that God has authoritatively empowered onto Jesus. And of course, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul says, For this reason, God highly exalted him, God highly exalted Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, being God's own name, being the Father's own name. The Father has given to Jesus and empowered Jesus with the Father's own authoritative name. Paul says that this happened at Jesus' resurrection and exaltation. So Jesus shares in God's name. This doesn't mean that Jesus is Yahweh or that Jesus is the Father. No, it means that God the Father has shared his authoritative name with Jesus the human Messiah. And our last point here in the New Testament is that Jesus is depicted as one who is like God without identifying him as God himself. In John 1.18, it says that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, or the only begotten Son, depending on what the manuscripts actually say. There's some confusion there. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That's John 1.18, to where the only begotten Son, Jesus, is the one who has fully explained, exegeted, and revealed the God that no one has ever seen. Jesus is the one that can explain God, the unseen God, as surely someone who is like God. Of course, Jesus says in John 14 and verse 9, that he who has seen me has seen the Father. Remember, the Father is the unseen one, the one that no one has seen. The Father is the invisible God. 
But Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father because Jesus is one who is like God. And of course, Paul says something similar in Colossians 1.15, where he says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is not the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the one that reflects the invisible God as one who is like God. All of these things can be said of a human king, because as we saw back in Zechariah, that the Davidic king, the ideal eschatological Davidic king, will be someone who is like God. So the human king Jesus in the New Testament can be described as one who is like God without being confused as thinking that Jesus is God. There is a big difference. And we need to observe that because that is a scriptural teaching. In conclusion, we have observed that Isaiah chapter 9, Ezekiel 34, Micah chapter 5, and Zechariah 12 depict how God can empower a human being to bear God's unique and majestic name, be like God while remaining fully human, be called God in the right circumstances, and even share in God's prerogative of the true shepherd of God's people. It is often assumed that human beings could never be called God, could never share in God's tasks, or bear God's unique name. However, both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament confirm that God can and has empowered special human beings with these highly exalted accolades. And yet, this human king still acknowledges Israel's God as my God and remains subordinate to the only true God. When the New Testament authors portray Jesus with these exalted descriptions, they are not indicating that Jesus is the same as Yahweh or that Jesus is a member within the Godhead. Rather, Jesus is a human being bearing the divine empowerment from God precisely as God's authorized human agent, the climactic king at the end of a long line of Israelite kings who likewise bore a high human status from the only true God, God the Father. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us. You can check out our episode's description for a PayPal link. I also want to recommend the Restitutio Podcast for those who desire longer episodes on a wider variety of biblical topics. You can check out the Restitutio Podcast at restitutio.org or on iTunes. Thank you so much for joining us today at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Again, my name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.